Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on Sunday, October 18th by Pastor Tim Voth. It's the fifth message in our Fall 2020 sermon series entitled, God of Wonder. Check out sardisfellowship.com for more information about our church. Last year in November, I started this book with my kids, The Magical Book of Wonderings. Here's what I wrote on the inside. Started on November 19th because Ben asks a lot of questions that I should probably know the answer to, but don't. Dedicated to my kids who keep me wondering. My kids ask a lot of questions, a lot of really good ones. So whenever they ask one that stumps me, I write it in here, and then I try to think about it and answer it. Or I'll just Google it when they're not there. There's some pretty awesome stuff in here. Like, does God control us like a video game? How do plants grow? Why are there tubes in my body? It's amazing how their questions make me realize just how little I actually know about most things. They ask why, literally to the point where I can't answer it. Why, Dad? Why, 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 why? It actually amazes me that adults function in the world with knowing so little of how it all actually works. I love this because kids have a way of wondering about the world that is beautiful to see, and listening to kids often puts us back in that mindset of wonder, and we begin to see the world through children's eyes when we're around them. Now, we can't stay children forever, and there's a trade-off that happens when we grow up. One psychologist put it this way, the price we pay for growing up is we start to trade the relationship we have with untrammeled reality with shadows that are only complex enough to let us do what we need to and no more. In some ways, we become more competent, and in some ways, we become more blind. What that means is that in the process of becoming an adult, we have to reduce the world in some ways in order to function in it. But if we're not careful, we can lose our sense of wonder and complexity of the whole world before us and think we know more than we do and think the world is simpler than it is. But I bet if we were honest, we would all have our own magical book of wonderings deep within our hearts. Things we wonder, but have tucked away because there's no answer or we've glossed over with some pat answer or don't really know, think about, because we've reduced it to some simple answer that gives us enough information to get by. If you had a grown-up book of wonderings, what would be on your first page? I know that there's one that would be first in mine. Now, we're going through a sermon series called God of Wonder, where we're considering the things we wonder about God in hopes that we will encounter the living God and be led to worship, wonder, and amazement at the God of Wonder. And the first thing I wonder, if I'm being totally honest, is, God, why do you allow suffering? That would be the first question, first page, hands down. God, if you're all-powerful and all-loving, why is there suffering in the world? Or even more to the point, why do good people suffer? Sure, you do something stupid, you get hurt, it makes sense. People we think of as criminals, evil people, they suffer, and they get what they deserve, justice. But what about good people, honest people? You know, I know I'm not the first to wonder this. Many have wondered about this, and I'm sure you have too. Whether you're trying to untangle suffering you've experienced in the past, trying to console someone who you know who is currently suffering, you look at the world and see suffering everywhere, or are yourself right in the middle of tragedy and pain. This question is usually asked one of two ways. The first is as an intellectual philosophical dilemma, and the second is as a deeply personal experiential struggle. For the first, this is a philosophical puzzle that questions the existence of God. 
For the second, it is an intensely real here and now guttural plea, and no amount of abstract semantics or philosophical wizardry will change the deep hurts and lack of trust in a God who would allow fill in your own blank, a, a pandemic, people overdosing, people in hospitals passing away without being able to see their loved ones, freak accidents, terminal diagnoses, chronic pain, losing a child, a spouse, a sibling, a parent, a friend, losing a job, relational turmoil, stress, or even just a stubbed toe. We're left with the simple question, why God? Why? Now there's a lot of good that can come from thinking about it the first way. This is usually through the discipline of apologetics or, or defense of the faith and systematic theology. There are a great many of theologians and apologists who have tackled this question much, much wiser and deeper thinking than me. Some more modern ones you might want to look into if you're interested that have been super influential to me would be Ravi Zacharias, Timothy Keller, Donald Blosh, William Lane Craig, and C.S. Lewis, to name just a few. But I want to take us in a different direction here. And you may be disappointed that I won't quite tie a neat bow on the answer to this question. In fact, spoiler alert, I won't even answer the question. But keep that in mind, because there may be a reason for it. I want to look at this question more through a story, through the eyes of a man who lived it. A man who millions throughout history have looked to as a model for what it looks like to have faith in God while suffering unjustly. A man whose journey of pain is forever etched in the pages of the Bible. And that person was Job. Job was a man who was wounded greatly, who wondered loudly, and in the end he worshipped humbly. Now, Job is a book in the Old Testament, and it is an amazing work of literature and inspiration, and I won't have time to go through it all, nor do I presume to fully understand it, but I want to do an, a bird's-eye overview of this book and his story. So Job was a man who lived thousands of years ago, who was in a place called Uz. The biblical authors describe him as a blameless and upright one who feared God and turned away from evil. He makes sacrifices, he has a full family, he's successful, he's a genuinely good person who seems to walk in wisdom, care, and love, and righteousness. Now, in light of this, you might expect the story to follow about a man whose life goes exceptionally well. But it's just the opposite. But before we get there, we're transported to a different realm, to a heavenly realm, and we, the reader, get a peek behind the veil of reality, so to speak. We get a picture of the heavens where God dwells, and it seems that we have walked in on some sort of celestial staff meeting. So much strange stuff is happening here in the story. But it is intentional. There's one among them called the accuser, or the one who's opposed, or the Satan. Now, there's no reason to be skeptical of Job's righteousness. God himself affirms it. But this accuser seems to think that Job has found a loophole in God's justice policy and is exploiting God for his own gain. He only worships you because you bless him so much, says the accuser. So God allows this opposing being to cause Job's suffering as a test. But before we get lost in the details, I think this section functions as a literary device the author has told us in order to give us an insider detail that we need to remember throughout the entire book if we're to understand it. Namely, that Job is righteous. He has done nothing horribly wrong. He has not earned any of his suffering. There's something going on behind the scenes of Job's life that he can't see, and we can but just because we can see it, this doesn't mean we can fully understand what's happening back there. So Job encounters a series of horrible events all in a row. A traumatic, catastrophic barrage of suffering, pain, and loss. All his wealth? Gone. All his kids? Gone. All of his health? Gone. All of God's blessings and gifts that Job enjoyed? Gone. 
And what is left is a pitiful man, covered in sores and ashes, left to wallow in his misery and pain. And by now you should be feeling outraged at the injustice on these pages. What in the world was that about, God? All this suffering and pain and death just to prove a point to some angelic being? That's, that's cruel. That's unjust. Why? Why would you do that? The story is set up for us to grapple with the question of why God allows such horrible suffering. And we wonder, along with Job, right in the middle of the misery and the mystery. He was wounded greatly. But listen to Job's response. He tore his clothes as a sign of lament and fell down and worshipped. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So Job does have faith. And immediately the accuser's proposition that Job just worships God because God gives him stuff is leveled. But we can't make the mistake of thinking that Job's worship was neat and tidy and sanitized and resolved and trite. Through the next 30-ish chapters, Job shows just how messy that worship looks while he's on an emotional roller coaster of grief and suffering. And this roller coaster doesn't take place alone. Job has three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They come to him and they see how greatly he's suffering, so they're just silent with him for seven days. And this was truly their finest hour. In the book, All Our Losses and All Our Griefs, the author says this, when you suffer, two warring needs develop, the need to be alone with one's grief and the need to, be isolated from meaning, to not be isolated from meaningful communities of support. The Jewish custom of sitting Shiva with grief-stricken friends comes close to bridging the gap between these two needs. They come to the home and just sit quietly with the hurting. The friends see his distress and are simply a presence of reassurance and love. But then they start talking, and suddenly we begin to see that they are people who no longer wonder. They have the answers. Their theology seems airtight. They have God figured out, and they're here to give the reasons to defend God's justice. Indeed, for some religious people, it seems more important to defend God than to attend to the needs of those who grieve. To the friends, Job throws a wrench in their theology. The reasoning goes as follows. God is just. This is true. If God is just, then every pain and evil must be a result of a one-to-one -one ratio of justice. They're like the book of Proverbs on steroids. If you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. None of the subtle you know, nuance or generalities of wisdom literature. Job must have done something wrong. They have reduced God to a formula. Therefore, rather than seeking to console Job with the affirmations of love, mercy, faithfulness, complexity, and wisdom of God, they begin to pester, judge, critique, and accuse Job of being a bad person. They say things like, who that was innocent ever perished? That if you just agree with God, good will come to you. That Job is basically a maggot or a worm, and that Job even deserves worse than he's getting. They even begin to guess about what evil stuff Job has done. They start with a big assumption. God doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people. If they're suffering, they're bad. Now, as the reader, you should bristle against this. Not only because of lived experience, you've most likely seen bad things happen to decent or innocent people. And good things happen to horrible people. But you have the inside scoop in the story. Job is innocent and does not deserve this. While they think they know how God works, you as the reader see that they are wrong and that there's something much more complex taking place. This can't be the answer, and Job knows it. He pours out his heart. He pours out his complaint. Look at the vacillations of this man in the middle of suffering. Some moments he's in the depths. God has denied me justice. God is violently against me and hates me, and he orchestrates all injustice in the world. Other moments he's full of faith. Listen to these. 
Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. Or I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Yet in my flesh I shall see God. All these words, he says, are are just wind. He just needs to talk it out. He needs to wrestle it out and open up to God. But his friends get caught up in the details of the words and pin him to the wall for it. The worst among them is Zophar. This is how one commentator describes him. Job has no obligation to keep to the prim conventions of pious talk just to satisfy people like Zophar. Zophar's cold disapproval shows how little he has heard Job's heart. His censorious chiding shows how little he has sensed Job's hurt. Job's bewilderment and his outbursts are natural. In them we find his humanity and our own. Zophar detaches the words from the man and hears them only as babble and mockery. This is quite unfair. Zophar's wisdom is a bloodless retreat into theory. But notice as you read through the chapters that Job is the only one talking to God. Others talk about him. Job talks to him. I want to meet you, the Almighty. I will make my complaint to you. It's like he's saying, enough of this back and forth. You have no answers for me. You're horrible comforters. I need to meet with God himself. And he makes his final case. Here I am. I await for your answer. He has wondered loudly. Then all is silent. It's almost like the collective wisdom of the ages is spent and there's nothing left to be said and we're left with no answers after 30 chapters of poetic theological battle. But then a friend speaks who quite honestly perplexes me. me. His name is Elihu. And I'm not sure of his literary function in the story. Maybe we're supposed to think, aha, after all this, this person will have the answer. Job wants to meet with God and now this person will bring the truth of God. But here's what he says. And to be fair, it is a little more nuanced than the other three friends. He doesn't have their view of justice, but rather says that God is just, but we can't necessarily see how. That God is greater than our perspective. That Job does not have the vantage point to make such accusations about God. Now this actually foreshadows what God is about to say about himself. And I wonder if we're supposed to feel that while Elihu speaks closer to the truth of the situation, it is still only something said on God's behalf. But it is still not an encounter with God. And that is what Job needs, and that is what we need. Not to hear from humans their theories of suffering, but to encounter the living God ourselves. Then finally, after all is said, God does show up. Job gets his wish, but be careful what you wish for. We expect that God has shown up to answer Job's question, but suddenly the roles reverse. Job, I am the questioner. You answer me. God suddenly takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Have you ever given orders to the sun and it obeyed? How many stars can you hold in your hand? Can you feed all the animals on the land and sea? Do you even realize they exist? Can you even think about them all at once? God is basically saying, Job, your perspective is so incredibly small. There's no possible way you could ever understand even the smallest bite-sized sample of how I'm running this universe and this world, let alone your life. You are part of an infinitely complex cosmic system, and you can see this tiny little bit of it for a short amount of time. If I manage all of this, all of the mysteries you don't even know about, what makes you think you could understand what is and what is not ultimately just? Would you discredit my justice? Job comes face to face with the God of wonder. Job gets his wish. He meets with God, but he's too overwhelmed and in awe to even make his case. Here's how he responds to this encounter. I had heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. 
Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. He worships humbly. Why? He met with God, and God didn't even answer his question. But in a sense, God couldn't. This question assumes Job has the vantage point to understand the answer, and God simply says, you can't. You can't know the answer. The narrative builds and builds and builds and builds to the answer. Then he's left with the wonder and the mystery he started with. Hence why I said you may be disappointed. But more on that in a minute. Now, the epilogue to this story is so crucial. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry at you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. As my servant Job has. That's like incredible. If you piled up all the angry, misguided things Job said to God in the middle of his suffering, you'd be appalled. But in the end, it is Job's friends, those who presume to know exactly how God works with their tiny, limited, reductionist view of God's justice that get rebuked. Minus Elihu, which is, I think, worth pondering. And God says twice that Job spoke truthfully about him. It seems that God honors Job's struggle and his honesty in the middle of suffering. Not only so, but God restores Job. He heals him and he even gives him more than he had in the beginning. And he lives happily ever after. And that's the story of Job. There's so much in there. But here, I think, are a few main things we can take away from this story of Job's life and encounter with God that might actually guide us in the middle of our suffering and questions. The first is that God is far more complex than we realize, and our perspective is so much more limited than we often think it is. From Job's perspective, God wasn't being just, but we need to remember that if God is truly God, then as Rob quoted last week, Tim Keller says this, if you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have, at the same moment, a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. Our suffering is real and awful and painful and deep, and it may seem that this is a cosmic cop-out on God's part to our deep hurting questions. But we must confess that there are loose ends when it comes to finding reasons for our suffering. There is mystery, and if we could understand it all, then we ourselves would be God. Tim Mackey said this, that the book of Job is an invitation to trust God's wisdom when we do encounter suffering, rather than try to figure out the reasons for it. When we search for reasons, we tend to either simplify God like the friends, or like Job, accuse God, but based on limited evidence. So the book is inviting us to honestly bring our pain and our grief to God and to trust that God actually cares and that he knows what he is doing. So if you or or someone around you tries to say, aha, this must be the one reason that this suffering happened, don't listen to it. God is complex and we cannot see the whole work of what God is up to. We might be privy to a few glimpses of his reasons as time passes here and there, but we may never see in this life the reasons behind certain sufferings. And Corrie Ten Boom was a woman very familiar with suffering. Having survived one of the concentration camps in World War II after being sent there for hiding Jews in her home, how's that for bad things happening to good people? She wrote a poem in which she used the analogy of a tapestry. With a tapestry, you use different color threads to make a picture. But if you were to look on the bottom, you wouldn't be able to make out the full picture and would only see a tangled mess of seemingly random threads. We are looking at the bottom of the tapestry. We are stuck here with unanswered questions in the mess of the mystery. Because of our vantage point, we cannot see the full picture. 
But God is above and is the grand weaver, threading all things together in his sovereign plan, creating a picture of love and redemption and restoration. But to believe this takes trust. This leads to the second takeaway, our character. Listen to the chain in Romans 5, 3-4. Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character hope. One of the ways God uses suffering in our lives is to shape and refine our faith and our character. Now again, don't reduce it to that. God doesn't only allow suffering only for you to grow, but it does seem to be one of his tools he uses to shape us. And Job knew this too. One person in our congregation pointed this verse out to me from Job, and it has always stuck with me. If I go east, he's not there. If I go west, I can't find him. When he is at work in the north, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the south, I cannot see him. Yet he knows the way I have taken. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. Job can't see God at work, yet the fact that his character is shaped is an evidence for God's presence. James picks up on this as well and actually makes one of two explicit references to Job in the rest of Scripture. James says that trials test our faith and goes on to say, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Harvey Peters in his Bible study is going through the book of James and told me that the same Greek word for tested is the same word that archaeologists have found on ancient clay pots that have been through the fiery kiln and are stronger afterwards. When we are put through the fiery kiln of suffering, our faith is refined and made more durable and tough. Sufferings aren't meant to break us. They're meant to make us strong, pure, refined, and deep in character and faith. And this leads to the third point, which is that God honors our journey of suffering. I've heard people say in the middle of intense hardship and pain, whatever you do, you can't question God. And I think, have you ever read Job or any of the Psalms? They're filled with grieving, angry prayers from people right in the middle of pain who are being brutally honest with God. The way in which Christians grieve should not be the way others grieve. The approach of the faithful to God quite properly includes deep and bitter lamentation. It is actually a distinctly Christian thing to grieve honestly. There's nothing strong about cutting short emotions in the name of being theologically correct about God. In fact, it is Job's friends whom God rebukes who have all the right words about him. Clearly, God welcomes this head-on airing of grievances towards him. Why? because it is towards him. No one else talked to God. Job talked to God and wrestled with him like Jacob, who was later renamed Israel, he who wrestles with God. There's no shortcut through grief. It may take months or years or a lifetime, but the journey in the middle of it is what matters, not how fast you can get answers. Expressing grief is a necessary part of healing and a welcomed part of our relationship with God. He invites it, and it is in fact a display of genuine faith and maybe the only way to truly encounter God in the middle of suffering. There's a fiction book by C.S. Lewis called Till We Have Faces, and there's one line that summarizes his main point so well. How can we meet God face to face till we have faces? If we hide ourselves behind a veil, unwilling to be deeply honest with God, unwilling to show our true face, while simultaneously demanding God meet us face to face, we cannot encounter him. Job removes the veil, presses in, was brutally honest, and God met him face to face. And this leads to the next point. We can actually encounter God himself. No one's words will satisfy our souls, not mine, not anyone else's, no matter how accurate or compassionate. 
Everything is just words and wind until we encounter God personally. We need to know God in the middle of suffering and know that he walks with us and knows us. We cannot know all the reasons for our suffering and pain, but we can know the one who does know. And for this, we look to Jesus, who invites us to freely come to him and know his love. Love. Job suffered deeply, and as Christians, he is a foreshadow of the Christ who was to come. Jesus knew injustice and suffering. Job was righteous. Jesus was perfect. Job suffered as one man. Jesus took on the sufferings of humanity, including yours. Jesus is the archetype of someone experiencing injustice. And in Jesus, we see that whatever the answer might be to suffering, it cannot be that God allows it because he does not love us or is indifferent to our plight. God takes misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. Jesus came down into the mess underneath the tapestry, not to tie up all the loose ends here, but to bring us through the tangled mess of sin and death to the top of the tapestry and then resurrection and the new heavens and new earth. And this leads to the final point. We will have our own happy ending. And some people look and wonder at the book of Job and wonder if the, the ending was wrong, if it was an afterthought pinned onto the book to make up for the unanswered questions of suffering. But I don't think that's the case. It is a fairy tale ending. Just as Job didn't do anything wrong to earn his pain, so too he didn't do anything particularly right to earn the blessings at the end. Again, God in his sovereign, divine providence was weaving Job's story and had reasons for the bad and the good that Job may have never known the reasons for. All of this is a gift. All is a blessing. And so we're drawn back to Job's original words, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. But why such childlike wishing and wonder after such a hard dose of reality? Is this naive optimism? No, this is faith. Faith like a child, yes, but not make-believe. This is the heart of Christianity. If we can trust God has reasons for suffering, then we can believe his words about our hope. Suffering produces hope. When you get that diagnosis, when you hear of that accident, when your body aches and groans, when you're up to your neck in stress and anxiety about tomorrow, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, don't you long? Don't you long for a new world? If we could recapture the wonder of a child, maybe we could recapture the hope that trusts in the one true fairy tale ending, a new heaven, a new earth, new bodies, no more pain or tears. Here's how Dostoevsky puts it in his novel, The Brothers Karamazov. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for the comfort of all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, that it will not only make it possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. So do you still have that childlike wonder? Good. Don't lose it. Don't reduce God. Don't simplify him. Don't box him in. You can trust that he has the bigger picture in the midst of your pain. You can trust that through everything he is shaping your character. You can trust that he is with you on the journey. You can trust that if you seek him, you will find him. Find him as the one who suffered for you so he can sympathize with you. You can trust that in Christ, whatever pain you face will come to be seen as light and momentary affliction in light of the eternal weight of glory when all things are made new. So look to Job, but ultimately to Jesus, and allow your wonder to be turned to worship. Thanks for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, 
please check out sardisfellowship.com.